Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It is really great to have you here today for a fabulous, juicy, educational conversation. I am so, so excited for you to listen to this conversation with Emma Hawkinson. She is the founder and director at Collective Fashion Justice, a not-for-profit working for a total ethics fashion system that values people, animals, and the planet before profit. Collective Fashion Justice recently published a series of reports called Under Their Skin about animal leathers in the fashion industry, animal materials, and the way that animal skins and furs are used in the fashion industry. And I was especially excited to speak with Emma about the latest report called Leather's Impact on the Planet. It was a really fascinating collection of research that focused on the harms of the leather supply chain, the environmental impacts, speaking about deforestation, the larger climate impacts, talking about the CO2 and the other emissions associated with the leather industry. All really fascinating research that I was excited to read all together and really get this full picture of the impact of the leather industry. I personally had never been exposed to research like this and especially not so well packaged. So I was excited to speak with Emma about that. And then as soon as I read the report, I saw this viral TikTok video of Emma outside an Hermes store protesting. And I think what's interesting about this protest and the reason that it was so, so well received on TikTok is because she's very well dressed and she's speaking so calmly and eloquently, sharing facts about crocodile skins and the way that Hermes processes their bags. I share this to help you understand the levels of excitement I was to speak with Emma. There were so many things that I wanted to ask her about, and today's conversation really captured a lot of what I was interested in learning from her. So we speak not only directly about the leather industry, but also animal welfare, also about climate and the environmental impacts, and also about activism and how to do it in this attractive, calm, eloquent way that really gets people listening. I really, really think that you will learn a lot from this conversation, and it was one that I deeply enjoyed, and I hope that Emma joins us again. I have two housekeeping items for us today. First of all, I want to share the opportunity for one last week to check out the survey in the show notes. It is called Eco Chic Wrapped 2022, and it helps me get a better understanding of what you like to listen to, what kind of guests you want, what kind of topics you want to hear about in the new year. It helps me out a lot especially as I am planning the next few months of the show. So it should take you less than a minute. And again, it's in the show notes. This will be the last week and then I will close it out. And it really, really helps me out to make sure that Eco Chic remains your very favorite podcast. Second housekeeping item is really exciting. I am looking to hire. I'm looking to hire someone part-time to help out with social media and marketing. So if you are someone with a PR background, a marketing background, if you're someone who is just passionate about environmental causes and your internet savvy, go ahead and reach out to me. My email is in the show notes. It's laura at lauraediaz.com. And I would love to see a resume and a little blurb about why you feel like you'd be a good fit for Team Eco Chic. If you are a student and you need an internship credit or some sort of internship opportunity, let me know and I'm happy to work with you as well. Either way, it's a paid position and I'm really excited to bring someone on who enjoys the show, understands the vision, and is here to take us into the next level online. And with that, let's jump into our conversation with Emma Hawkinson, founder and director of Collective Fashion Justice, all about a total ethics fashion system. Enjoy. Emma, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm excited about this. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Before we even start talking about leather, I'd love to talk a little bit about you. Tell Mm -hmm. me 
about the moment or the period in time where you were perhaps radicalized when it comes to animal <laughs> welfare and sustainable fashion? I think my radicalization towards what I now call total ethics fashion happened in really three different stages. The first was actually about people. Um, I was in Cambodia and I ended up in the workshop of a brand called Dorsu, which is co-founded by two women and one of them used to work in a Cambodian sweatshop and now was helping to run this really ethical business. Her name was Kunthia and she shared her experience of what it used to be working, you know, in a facility where women would have babies at their feet while they were working because they couldn't afford to have their babies anywhere else and they weren't allowed to go out for lunch and they weren't allowed all of these things. And the day before I had brought a T-shirt that definitely would have been from a sweatshop like that and it just really brought how real the impacts of my purchases are right into my face. So that was a huge first step. And then maybe a year later, I started to connect with the animal side of things. I started to consider kind of the discrepancy between how I viewed different animals because I was living in Sweden. Half of my family lives there. And I was being offered up to eat moose, to wear animals that, you know, we conventionally don't wear or eat in Australia where I live. And I felt really uncomfortable with that. And then I realized it wasn't really reasonable for me to have an issue with eating a moose if I was happy to wear a cow. And so that kind of speciesism came up for me and I decided that I didn't want to be fine with both. I wanted to choose to not be involved with wearing or seeing animals as commodities. So that was kind of the second part. And then I think once you've really got a sense of I care about people and I care about animals more than profit, it's easy to extend that to the environment and go, well, we all need to live here and have a safe place to live. There's so much more in the world than the animals that we, you know, see on farms and people. Biodiversity is huge. And so that was kind of the inevitable next step. And because I was working as a model, it all fell into a fashion framework where I was like, right, what I do now doesn't align with any of those values. So how can we change the fashion industry and get a little bit more radical? Thank you so much for sharing that. That is a very nice package, I suppose, when you explain it in these three parts of how you view the fashion systems that we have today. And I also have to imagine during your time as a model, you were interacting with a lot of folks that perhaps were not aligned with the way that you saw the world or saw the industry. So I'd love to also perhaps talk a little bit about those early days, those early conversations you were having when you were kind of rationalizing what you were doing and these values that you were really trying to act out. Mm. Well, I started modeling really young. I got signed to an agency when I was 14. So my kind of confidence to have a really strong ethical standpoint had to grow over time. So at first, you know, I was wearing fur and that was a part of my job and how I made money. And then I was realizing that that was not at all something I wanted to profit from. So first I said, okay, I don't want to wear things like that. And then I moved to, I won't wear any animal materials and I want things to be made by people who are paid fairly. And that got complicated because, you know, so many people fall into traps where a company says, yeah, we pay our workers fairly, but there's a real difference between like fair pay and a genuine living wage. And same with sustainability, trying to grapple with 
what fashion brands and what garments are genuinely sustainable was really hard. So for a while, I kind of, you know, I did my best while modeling. And then I decided that I would only model for brands that met some of those kind of core ethical requirements and that I would help to consult with brands so that they could meet those requirements so I could work with them. So like there was one brand when I was maybe 17 and they moved from having all cowskin leather accessories that were, you know, conventionally tanned and everything to Pinyatex, the pineapple pineapple leaf fibre alternative bags. And then I modelled for them and they were all made fairly in Sydney. So it took a bit of time to kind of work out what I was doing and then ultimately it got too hard. I don't think that I could be a model and make all of my money from that today if I only wanted to, you know, wear total ethics clothes. Unfortunately, the fashion industry is not there yet. So that's why I founded Collective Fashion Justice and I'm doing more of the lobbying and education and work to change that. I feel like that also must have been difficult for you to come to that realization of like in the fashion system that we have today, I actually can't continue this career that I've already invested myself in. Because I think that really speaks to this larger issue. It's not just education and it's not just choosing brands that align with your values. But if there are frankly just not enough brands for you to be that picky, I suppose, in your career, then Mm. that also speaks to a much larger systemic issue. And it comes to that education portion. It comes to the lobbying. And I think that when I personally, as a consumer, think about animal welfare, specifically in the fashion industry, I immediately think of PETA. I immediately think of like the PETA anti-fur campaigns of the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. And they were very dramatic. They were very kind of shocking in a way that got the fashion industry thinking more deeply about fur. And I think that's also interesting because now we don't see nearly as much real animal fur as we did 20, 30 years ago. But there are also a lot of kind of sneaky materials that we've started accepting or rationalizing. Mm. And that brings me to the conversation of leather. You mentioned leather just as you were discussing your day's modeling. And I'd love to talk a little bit about leather because it's a fascinating material where there's a lot of innovation going on. And there's also kind of this cognitive dissonance of consumers that they don't always realize the processes behind it. So just Mm. setting the scene a little bit, what is leather? How is it actually produced? To kind of go back a little bit first, I am the founding director of Collective Fashion Justice and we work for a total ethics fashion system that puts people, animals and planet before profit. And one of our most recent works is a series of reports on leather. So leather's impact on people, leather's impact on the planet. Next, we have animals and then a just transition. And so through all of that research and work, we have really come to unpack all of these myths and ideas that people think about leather. I think probably the biggest one around leather is this idea that it's a byproduct. And so you can buy it kind of without any consideration of where it's come from. But to call something a byproduct and then say, we don't have a responsibility to consider anything about this product is kind of a fallacy. It's true that leather comes from the meat and dairy industries. They're the same industry that is rearing cattle for profit. But leather is what we define as a co-product, and it's actually what the meat industry refers to it as in their own reporting. A co-product is something that it's not the primary product in most cases, but 
it's something that is hugely profitable. We see slaughterhouses lose multi-million dollar, you know, financial gains if skins aren't selling, including if they're not selling because alternatives to leather are becoming more popular. We also see that, you know, the United States Leather and Hide Industry Association, they say that if they could sell more cattle skins and they could sell them for more money because more people wanted to buy leather goods, they would increase the population of cows that they rear and slaughter. So it absolutely is tied to the profitability of the industry. And so then once we know that, it's important that we know, okay, so what is that industry? And if you look in the United States and you look across the world, the cattle industry is hugely climate impactful. The methane that comes from cows breathing, burping, passing gas through enteric fermentation is a huge contributor to the climate crisis. A lot of people have heard the kind of data around 16.5% of global emissions being associated with animal rearing in general. And like 60% of all of that is just cows. So cows are really a big deal for the climate. But there's also a lot to consider around biodiversity. Rearing cows to turn them into material and food is very land inefficient. You need to feed them a lot so that you can get actually not that much out of it. So there's lots of considerations like that, but there's also ethical considerations. You know, slaughterhouse workers who kill animals like cows are more likely to face perpetration-induced traumatic stress because of the inherently violent nature of their work. And of course, at the centre of it all, there are cows who are beings that we know scientifically and just emotionally are sentient and who do have to die unnecessarily, I think, for a product like leather. So there's a lot to unpack in it, but I feel like they're the kind of core things everyone should begin with knowing. Yeah, thanks for setting the scene so nicely. I hadn't heard that term co-product. Is that what you called it, a co-product? Yeah. I hadn't heard that before, and I think that's a really great way to frame it because... Break to ask, have you ever wondered why laundry detergent comes in these massive plastic jugs? I personally can't stand them. They're inconvenient, they're awkward, they're heavy, not to mention they are up to 90% full of water. Washing machines already use water, so why would we be paying more for it? Not to mention over 90% of those laundry jugs don't get recycled. That's right, there is 700 million detergent jugs ending up in our landfills every single year. It's not like you can just stop doing laundry, but there is a really fabulous plastic-free alternative, Earth Breeze. I've got a little bit of a story with Earth Breeze laundry detergent sheets. Over the summer, I was at a wedding and my girlfriend's aunt had a packet of Earth Breeze laundry sheets and she gave them out to each of the girls that were at this luncheon or, you know, kind of wrapping up the luncheon. And she said, I know you guys are traveling. If you need to do laundry, this is a great eco-friendly alternative that I found. And I was really excited to take them home. And of course, my girlfriends were like, oh, Laura's going to love this eco-friendly laundry detergent. And sure enough, I was hooked. I've been buying these for the last six months. I really enjoy them because they're easy to travel with, just like my girlfriend's aunt mentioned. But I like that it takes up so much less space in my laundry unit, especially because I don't live in a huge space, it's great to cut back where I can. And of course, I love that it's plastic free. Earth Breeze has really made the whole concept of detergent just better. The packaging is compact, it's biodegradable, it's plastic free again. And of course, the eco sheets are vegan, cruelty free, and they're tested by dermatologists so you know they're safe for sensitive skin. 
My skin is like laughably sensitive sometimes to fragrances, especially in laundry detergent. So I really, really love that. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets are easy to keep up with because they offer flexible subscriptions that can be adjusted, paused, and canceled by you at any time without a penalty. And they have this really fabulous buy one, give 10 initiative. Each purchase donates 10 loads of laundry to a charitable cause of your choice. They've already donated 30 million loads. These little sheets have turned a chore into an act of kindness. Earth Breeze Laundry Detergent Eco Sheets look like dryer sheets, but they dissolve 100% in any wash cycle, hot or cold. It really could not be easier. There is no measuring. There is no mess. You just toss them in and you're still getting a powerful clean for your clothes. You've got to trust me, the Earth Breeze Eco Sheets will help you totally rethink your laundry routine, and I know you will enjoy trying them yourself. If you don't like them, Earth Breeze will give you a full refund. You don't even have to send it back. They are confident that you're going to love it as much as I do. Now's the time to try Earth Breeze because right now my listeners can subscribe and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash ecochic to get started. That's earthbreeze.com slash ecochic for 40% off earthbreeze.com slash eco chic it's in the show notes it gives a lot of perspective also like you mentioned all of these intersections of the people that are working in this industry the environmental impact the climate impact there are so many layers to this issue that are much larger than simply encouraging people to choose other alternatives so i suppose my next question for you is just zooming in a little bit on that environmental impact what is so harmful about the leather industry So you mentioned kind of the climate impacts, these larger emissions that are associated with the leather industry. But what about that day-to-day processing? How do we get from a cow to a leather handbag, for example? Yeah, if you're going to make a cow into a material that you can wear, a lot goes on. Because if we wear skin now, because ultimately that's what it is, even though it's, you know, kind of easier to forget that. If we wore shoes that were made out of skin that was unprocessed, it would rot on our feet. Like carcasses rot. That's what happens in nature. And so the leather tanning industry exists specifically to make something that's organic. And I don't mean like organic with pesticides, like literally an organic matter. It's to make something organic inorganic. So it's trying to halt the natural degradation process. So in order to do that, you have to kind of fundamentally change what skin is. Um, 90% of leather around the world is tanned with chromium and that is a carcinogenic substance that is a heavy metal that is really harmful to the people who work with it and that is harmful to the environment if it is let out into kind of surrounding waterways. Other really common substances used in leather tanning include arsenic, formaldehyde, kind of All of those substances that you hear of and you know is a bad thing, most of them are involved in leather tanning. And the process is basically to, you know, strip off the fat, strip off the hairs, and first you kind of dry out the skin and then you go through lots of different processes, liming, and ultimately then you have to dye it. And one part that's really interesting is the finishing part. Once leather is tanned, it's then finished to make it look how we associate leather as looking. So in that part, that's where, you know, maybe a texture is embossed on the top. Maybe it's something like patent leather, which patent leather is leather that's coated in plastic. So when we're talking about the dichotomy of like, oh, I want to buy cowskin leather instead of plastic, a lot of cowskin leather is also plastic. 
and based on labeling laws around the world so long as that plastic is quite minimal compared to the cow skin you don't actually legally have to label it as coated in plastic so saying that they're these two opposite things is really often not the case that is a that is a juicy tip i did not <laughs> realize first of all it seems like so clear now that you're mentioning that patent leather is clearly leather coated in plastic but mm. also the labeling of it is really shady i think especially mm people who take a lot of pride in what they eat or looking at ingredient labels. Here is another instance where we are kind of being fooled by what we are presented with. Mm, totally. And like, that's very intentional. It's the same reason you don't legally have to, in many places, name the specific species of animal that's been skinned. It's kind of as much disconnect as possible is helpful for this industry. So on tanning too, though, Often people will say, so vegetable tanning is the solution then. But according to industry studies, including those that have been published in something like Tannery Magazine, regardless of if something is chrome tanned or vegetable tanned, even in controlled climate conditions, neither of those materials are effectively biodegradable. So the tanning process exists to make something that was once biodegradable, non-biodegradable. And of course, that means, you know, the industry kind of at once tries to say, this is a really long lasting product and this is a natural product, but often you can't have both because natural things decompose and they degrade. So that's an interesting part of it that I think is also kind of breaks down some of the arguments against alternatives to leather because everyone thinks leather is biodegradable when unfortunately it's generally not. I'm also really fascinated by this concept that vegetable tanning versus what we consider mainstream or traditional means for tanning leather is not necessarily any better. Like the processes that we also have come to rationalize as a more eco-conscious, perhaps public in the last few years are also a little skewed. So not mm. only is the vegetable tanning not necessarily better, you're also still never getting a biodegradable product. So I'm curious then to ask you about leather alternatives. So we've talked a little bit about traditional leather animal skins being produced, quote unquote, in the fashion industry. But I know that there's also a lot of controversy around the potential alternatives when it comes to mm. leather. There's a lot that have been really well-developed and a lot that are on the market. And there are some that are still very much ideas. So I feel like this could be a big conversation to have as well. Mm. Yeah. And I think the first part to realize is that a lot of the kind of genuinely fear mongering around alternatives to leather is whipped up by the leather industry. Like they want us to be worried about what's in alternatives to leather so that we don't focus on their industry, so that we don't focus on deforestation, indigenous land rights issues they're involved with, pollution, all of that stuff. But onto alternatives. I think the first really interesting thing, which is often something people find controversial, so let's say that, is that even if you look at the most common alternative to cowskin leather, which is polyurethane, which is not a sustainable material either, despite it not being sustainable, it has about seven and a half times less of a climate impact. When you look at carbon equivalent emissions, it has about 14 times smaller a water footprint. The land footprint is so much smaller. The biodiversity impact is so much smaller. Even the chemistry impact is smaller, despite it being a fossil fuel derived product. 
And none of this is to support or promote synthetic leather. It's something we need to move beyond. Collective fashion justice's stance is that we need to move beyond all animal-derived and fossil fuel-derived materials. Like, that's just reality for us. But showing the comparison is interesting because so many of us are, like, so so sure that we want to be away from synthetics and don't realise it's like a lesser evil to an extent, even though they're both not good enough. So if we're looking at alternatives that are like, let's celebrate them, I think the best one that exists and that you can buy at the moment, but, you know, it's a few brands, it's quite expensive, so it needs time to become more mainstream, is Miram from Natural Fibre Welding. It's 100% biodegradable. It's completely plastic-free, completely animal-free. And it's made in a process which allows it to be totally circular so they can break it down and make it into new material. You know, they could shred up a shoe and make another shoe. They use all kinds of different materials like coconut husks, different clays, different plant oils, all kinds of things like that. But there's also materials like I think that post-consumer recycled synthetic leather is actually a valid option because it's not something that you put in the washing machine, so it's not going to release microfibers. And the reality is we have so many synthetic things in the world. So if we're not allowing them to stay in a closed loop, we're just like, like, what are we doing with them if not recycling? So I think that's another option. And then there are kind of more traditional natural materials like cork, which you can shred cork from a tree as bark without harming the tree. There's also washable paper. There's lots of different options like that. And there's also at the moment alternatives that are like partly synthetic and partly bio-based. So if you hear something like apple leather or cactus leather, all of those materials are partly that vegetable bio-based product and they're partly synthetic. And they are still in reality the best choice that you can make at the moment in a lot of cases. You know, they're not perfect yet, but if perfect isn't available to you, it's kind of the next best thing. And then, of course, I think one thing that is really often forgotten is that you can buy, if you don't want to buy animal skin, you know, I used to wear my secondhand leather that I already had, and then I rescued a cow and she licked my shoe and it was skin and I just was like, never again, that's it for me, I can't. That's never happening again. So people forget, though, that you can have vintage. There's a lot of vintage vegan leather. So if you don't want to buy new things and you want to support vintage and pre-loved, but also not associate yourself with like animal commodification, you can do all of those things at once. So I think that's a really important alternative to consider that it's not necessarily about buying new either. Yeah, I was going to ask you while we were talking about these leather alternatives, how you feel about leather secondhand, because Mm -hmm. I feel like very often the perhaps like consumer case for leather is, oh, it's such great quality. Oh, it lasts you for so long. It's so durable. And I could see the appeal in buying leather secondhand. I think I, as a consumer, I'm very open to buying leather secondhand, especially let's say it's like a brand that I wouldn't typically splurge on. And here's an opportunity Mm. for me to purchase it at a lesser cost pre-loved, but then you're right. You are still associating yourself with the commodification of animals. So what is kind of like that deeper conversation for consumers to have with themselves around secondhand Mm. leather? It is a personal decision because if you're buying leather it's actually not a personal decision anymore. Like you have a direct impact on other individuals. Any new purchase, that's the case. But with secondhand, 
it is more, you know, what are you prioritizing? And for me, I look for things that are really well made because I think the way a shoe or the way a bag is actually stitched together is just as important for longevity as the material. Like often we're comparing like a Zara synthetic leather bag with an Hermes leather bag and being like, oh, well, leather lasts a long time. It's like, well, that's not, that's not the only difference between those bags. But yeah, for me, I think that so long as I'm wearing the skin of an animal, I'm saying it's okay and I consider that skin is a material. I think that we should see skin as skin because otherwise we're not going to see those individuals actually as individuals deserving of autonomy. And that's something I like to talk about a lot. Like we talk about consent and autonomy in other spheres as these critical human rights, women's rights, like they're central to so many discussions. And talking about the use of animals in fashion is really the same conversation. Like do you think that every individual should have autonomy over their own body? If the answer is yes, leather doesn't fit in that category. That was so eloquent. Thanks for sharing that. And something that you mentioned in this last discussion we just had about leather alternatives and really considering materials was the difference between a Zara synthetic bag and an Hermes bag. And Mm. I feel like this is an excellent, excellent place to pivot into the viral TikTok I mentioned to you before we started recording that I was so deeply impressed with of you protesting outside of an Hermes store. So what I was so fascinated by, and I think the reason that so many people enjoyed that video is because you had just yourself and a megaphone and you were just sharing facts about leather production, the leather industry, all of these topics that we've discussed today in a very calm, eloquent voice. And again, it's still a protest. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about that moment. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about how you go about sharing this information with people in this very calm, welcoming, educated way. Mm. So I was outside of Hermes as a part of the Drop Croc campaign that my organization and a lot of organizations are involved with. So in the video, I'm talking specifically about crocodile skin. So in Australia, we have a lot of farms, factory farms that hold native crocodiles. Saltwater crocodiles have been in Australia for like 100 million years. And now more of them live in these factory farms that are owned by luxury brands like Hermes and Louis Vuitton than in their natural habitat. So there's obviously a lot of problems with that. And the video is looking at that, looking at the fact that you know, these animals can live to be like 70 years old, but they're killed when they're two or three years old. Um, And it takes about four crocodiles to make just like one Hermes Birkin bag that is sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars and only to the richest people in the world. Like that's not attainable to really anyone. And so I think the importance of being outside is not necessarily to convince the person that's going to buy an Hermes Birkin bag they're not there anyway you can't even buy the bags in store you have to like be on a wait list and all of that stuff it's to get the public on side and to consider something that is intentionally hidden and to make that no longer hidden so I think you know the general public hasn't done anything wrong they're not contributing to crocodiles being you know slaughtered electrocuted having all of these awful things happen to them so there's no reason for me to yell at them. Like, I just want them to know what's happening. Um, And I think that doing it in the way that I did it, you know, like when I go there, I dress up 
to look nice because I'm speaking to people who are in the city to go shopping for more luxurious goods. You know, I think it's really important if we're talking about fashion. I love fashion and I respect people who work in fashion. It's not about saying like all of this just for the sake of a handbag. There's nothing wrong with producing handbags. The thing that's wrong is how we do it. So I think that there's definitely a place for protest that is angry. And I think anger is not something to be like ashamed of or to get rid of. But I think in that particular context, it was just really important that it be inviting and for me to be able to hand out, you know, these pamphlets that we have that go to our website and to be able to invite people to go to the QR code on it and to send an email to Hermes, to send an email to the Australian government asking them to close down those factory farms. So, you know, people aren't going to do that if I'm yelling at them. Absolutely. And I think something important that you mentioned is that you respect fashion and you respect the people that work in fashion and you are dressing nicely because you know the people that are going to be interacting with you firsthand in those kinds of situations. And what's so important to all of this is that you're not placing blame on the people purchasing the bag or the people selling the bag or getting the wait list together. It's not really about the individual or the salesperson or whatever it may be. There is this larger system at play that a lot of people feel this distance from, this cognitive dissonance, like we were saying earlier. I don't really think that the concept even of crocodile farms is something that most people would think of right away when they think about a crocodile bag or a crocodile Birkin. They look at it as the status symbol of something that they're spending a lot of money on or that someone else has spent a lot of money on or whatever it may be. And then taking that one step further to say like, oh, but aren't you an animal rights activist? Aren't you all about adopting dogs instead of shopping from breeders? Like there are so many small things that you can tie in for an individual to question themselves and their own decisions. And that purchasing power is really powerful as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, the Maya Angelou quote that I'm not going to quote perfectly, but the whole one of, you know, once you know better, you can do better is completely true. I think people do have to be accountable to themselves once they have information that they have an obligation to do something with it. But if you don't know that something is wrong, you literally can't act on it. So we have to kind of get to that point first. And I think with fur and exotic skins, we're getting there where it's to a point where it's, you know, really commonly accepted. Like that's why people don't wear fur because people know like it's just not, it's not right. But we're not there with something like cow skin leather. We're not there with something like wool because the industries are really powerful in making people disconnect from their kind of natural values and from actually understanding what goes on. So, yeah, we can't be angry at people for doing something that they don't realise they're doing. We have to get them to the point where they know and then they can go, oh, this isn't actually what I want to be doing. And I think most people don't want to contribute to cruelty and to environmental destruction. Absolutely. And I think that even that individual decision or that individual realisation that you don't want to be contributing to cruelty or environmental destruction is really powerful because I think Also, the fashion industry has convinced us that individuals don't have a lot of power in these decisions. When Mm. we hear, particularly about fast fashion, when we have individual folks saying that they're not going to purchase, but is that really going to make a difference to the Sheehan's of the world? It's not really about one person. It's this larger collective issue. It's really like this issue of education. It's There's so many layers to how do we truly change the system of fast fashion in that particular case. 
then there are these larger fashion brands and fashion houses that hold a lot of the power and a lot of the influence here. So Mm. I'd love to talk also a little bit about brands who have moved away from fur and exotic skins. How do you see that kind of public interaction, I suppose, between brands and consumers? How are people reacting or how are brands really showcasing these initiatives? For fur and exotic skins, they're not co-products, they're primary products. Like most of the profit from a crocodile is in skinning them rather than from their meat or anything else. The same is true for fur. And so I think that is why we've kind of got further with those materials first, because it's easier to understand the direct harm involved with them. And so a lot of brands have moved away from fur. In our report, we did specifically on wild animal exploitation in fashion. We found that almost 70% of the most profitable luxury brands have got rid of fur. The ones that still use fur are ones like Fendi, who originally, like in their history, they were a furrier that sold fur pelts. So they're really clinging onto that for as long as they can. And then for exotic skins, There's a lot of brands that have got rid of them. Vivian Westwood, Victoria Beckham, um, Burberry got rid of them this year, which is a really big one. Lots of brands have. um, And there's even fashion weeks like the one in Melbourne where I live that has completely banned all of them. Copenhagen Fashion Week this year banned fur, which is a huge and exciting step given Copenhagen is in Denmark, which is like traditionally a fur industry country. So there's a lot of move away from it. And I think that brands are starting to realise that people are going to respect them more for taking a stand on issues that matter rather than just kind of being quiet about things. So I have no doubt that we're going to see more and more brands getting rid of these materials and getting rid of leather and wool as well. Like Ganny, they have decided that by the start of 2023, so really, really soon, they're not going to have any cowskin leather. And their CEO said something like, even though selling leather is profitable, soon it's going to be seen the same way as like smoking on TV. It's just not going to be considered accepted. And I'm really excited for when we all see it that way because it's only starting up now. That's a great comparison. That is a really good comparison because I think you're right. We don't really live in a time where brands or celebrities or anyone in the public eye can be neutral about very many Mm. things. There really aren't that many topics where you can just not have a stance and it be accepted. And I feel like leather in particular is becoming more and more of a touchy subject, right? If people are advocating for leather, that's also really concerning. That's like, okay, what are really your motivating thoughts behind this? And if someone is advocating for, we we mentioned earlier, very often people are saying, oh, it's more durable. It lasts longer. Okay. But that doesn't, that's not the only option, right? And so bringing those conversations to light when someone is neutral about the topic mm. of animals in the fashion industry is also really powerful. I don't, there, there was no question there. I'm just saying like, there's, there's something very reflective that has to happen when you are asking someone directly, like, how do you feel about leather? Yes or no? Yeah. And I think that comes back to what we were saying. Like if you're buying something, you can never be neutral about it. Like you have to decide what you're happy to fund because it's easy to forget it and to disconnect ourselves from it. But if you buy leather, your money goes down a supply chain that involves slaughterhouses, that involves deforestation, that involves chemical use, that involves all of these things. Like you have to decide if that's where you want your money to go. And that's why education is so important because a lot of people, once they understand that, are going to go, oh, no, I don't want my money to go towards that. 
I want my money to go to vintage. I want my money to go to cork, to recycled materials, whatever. And I think that's something too, like when you were mentioning that brands and the fashion industry want us to feel powerless as individuals, what we buy is of course really important and we can vote with our dollar and all of that kind of thing. But I think that the industry likes us to think that the only way we have power is through purchase. And that's definitely not the case. Like we can contact brands, we can protest, we can act collectively to help change the fashion industry through legislation, through, you know, community grassroots activism to change brands. So I think that's something I always like people to come away with, that like you can change things without spending any money. I like that sentiment a lot. And I think that's also not only an empowering note on your own, but there's also something really valuable about realizing that you're not the only person in this position. You're not the only person that feels perhaps conflicted about your purchasing decisions, perhaps conflicted about how you interact with certain brands or secondhand items or whatever it may be. This is a really large problem that a lot of people are interacting with and asking themselves about. So knowing that you have more options than simply voting with your dollar, quote unquote, is also really powerful. I'd love for us to kind of pivot a little bit. And I'd like to ask you a bigger picture question in your work, because I know that there are so many issues that you interface with when we talk about a truly ethical, full fashion system. What do you feel is perhaps one of the more misunderstood or misrepresented topics in fashion in creating a truly ethical fashion system? I think the main thing that if everyone understood, I think, you know, we'd make change so much faster, is that there isn't going to be a way for us to create a truly total ethics fashion system unless we view ethics and sustainability in a much more holistic way. At the moment, you know, there's a lot of work that's specifically about like labor rights are really important, living wages are really important, and that's true. And then there's a lot of work that's like animal exploitation isn't okay. And that's also really true. And then there's the same work around like climate, biodiversity. But when they're done totally separately, we miss that all of these issues are interconnected. So, you know, if we look at something like the wool industry, animals in that industry ultimately are slaughtered. That's something people don't realize. Um, They're often exploited and mutilated. And that animal part is up there. But then we also, are often not aware of the fact that in Australia, for example, where most wool is produced, a lot of shearers are really exploited and they're not paid fairly and they're not given safe working conditions and a lot of them get really injured shearing. And wool also contributes to the climate crisis with methane, biodiversity loss, all of that kind of stuff. And it's the same with like synthetic materials. Fossil fuels mean climate crisis, they mean environmental racism, like all of these issues are connected And I think that until we see that picking away at one part alone isn't going to work and we have to consistently recognise that the well-being of the planet, the well-being of animals, whether farmed or wild, and the well-being of people are all wrapped up. Like we're all part of nature and we separate ourselves from it. But I think until we realise that like we're all actually working for one thing, which is viewing people, our fellow animals and the planet before profit. I think if we don't see that, we're not going to get as far as we would like to. That was so beautiful and so eloquent. And of course, I expected nothing less than something extremely thoughtful and reflective (laughs) from you. And the last reflection that I have when we think about 
all of the folks in our community having similar goals of ethics when it comes to people and the planet and animals, of course, thinking more broadly about any of these issues over profit, there's always going to be that tiny voice in the corner of like, oh, we live in a society, you know, this is capitalism. This is, we have to have profits, et cetera. But I think very often people are forgetting that profits are possible in a truly ethical world. It's not one or the other. And Mm. just because a business is choosing to be profitable doesn't mean that they have to forego all of these more value-driven decisions as well. Mm. And if we have a total ethics fashion system, we can have profit and creativity that can genuinely be sustained. Like if we're talking about sustainability, it's what can we sustain without, you know, ruining the planet, without questioning and degrading our kind of moral integrity. You can make profit without destroying the world around you and those who live in it. And I think that that's really the only way that the fashion industry can feasibly continue. So absolutely, profit and ethics, they can be friends. They don't have to be separate. Yeah. Emma, thank you so, so much for joining me today. This has been really educational and really valuable. It's been an absolute treat to learn from you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me for what you do. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Emma Hawkinson, founder and director of Collective Fashion Justice. Like I said at the top, I learned so, so much from Emma during this conversation. I was really excited to host it. And then I left this conversation really satisfied. I loved learning from Emma. I hope you loved learning from her. And like I mentioned at the top, you can always share this with a friend. It means a lot to me. Post it on your Instagram story, you know, share it with everyone you know at Eco Chic Podcast. You can tag me. And then I will also say if you stick around the song, you can rate and review the show. Go ahead and make sure you check the show notes for that end of the year survey, Eco Chic Wrapped. Again, it should take less than two minutes and it helps me out so, so much in planning for the next year and making sure that this show continues to be a really valuable resource for you. And I want to make sure that it continues to be your very favorite podcast. With that, thanks so much for tuning in, and I will see you next week. Have a good one. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.